0: On Friday morning, a really good friend of mine told me about a new approach for interpreting Scripture. I'm so excited about it. It's going to make me more relevant, and it might even make me more popular. I'm just saying, you better get here early if you want to get a seat. Up until Friday, I had always approached Scripture, or my approach to Scripture was exegesis. X from the Greek word meaning out of, and Jesus, not J-E-S-U-S, but G-E-S-I-S, from the Greek word meaning to lead. And So exegesis means to lead out of, means you go to scripture and ask questions of it to find its truth. What are the meanings of words? What are the tenses of the verbs? What's the context in which the passage was written? That's the way I've always done it. But now I've learned a new way. It's called Narsa Jesus. Narsa meaning self, as in narcissistic or narcissism, and Jesus meaning to lead out. So, in this approach to scripture, we lead to self. In Narsa Jesus, everybody gets to be the center of the story. Isn't that good news? Can you see why that's so popular scripture? In this new way becomes all about you, your wants, and your needs, the narrative that you want to write for yourself. That's what's most important. And scripture merely serves to support and even commend your story. You like it? Okay, Narsa Jesus is not really. A thing. I think my friend coined that word, which makes me just a little bit mad because I. I wish I had come up with it myself. Isn't it brilliant, Narsa Jesus? But it does give me pause to ask the question of myself. Really, when it comes to the Word of God, practically speaking, do I approach approach it exegetically with Christ as the center, the truth of Christ as the center, or do I approach approach it narcissetically? With myself in the center. How about you? Which way do you approach Scripture? Let me say this very clearly Scripture speaks to all of us in every generation about all things. Every area of our life is addressed by Scripture. But that reality doesn't mean that we are the center of the biblical story, Christ is the center. As we sang in that new song that we learned recently, Amen and Amen, from beginning to end, Christ the story, His the glory. Hallelujah. Amen. 17th century Scottish pastor and Westminster Divine, the guy I refer to quite often as my best friend, Samuel Rutherford, writes this, we are as near to heaven as we are far from self. We're as near to heaven as we are far from self. Think it not hard if you get not your will, nor your delights in this life. God will have you to rejoice in nothing but himself. Until we remove ourselves from the center, we will never be free We'll never be unbound to do the good works that God has called us to do. Self-centered people cannot do Christ-centered good works. And Christ has called us to do them, to bear fruit for Him. So therefore, you and I must be Christ-centered. That's what I want us to talk about this morning as we return once again to John 15 and also Mark 14. So if you have your Bible... If you have your place in John 15, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. It's in the upper room on the last night of his life, and Jesus speaks these words. I'm divine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And now if you'll turn to to Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 3. These words spoken the Saturday before the Thursday, the words we just read. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was at reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indign- indignantly, "Why this? Why was?" She has anointed my body beforehand for burial and truly I say to you wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. These words chosen by you that we should know and hear. Words that you promise to bless. We are are thankful now that once again you will fulfill your promise to us and bless your word to our hearts and to our lives. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. What a blessing it is to us, those of us who have heard Jesus' call now over and over through these many weeks, that we should bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit, that we should do these good works. What a blessing it is to have this story of Mary recorded in Scripture. It's a bold story. It's a brave story. It's an unbound story. And if anything is abundantly clear in Mary's story, it's that Mary is no jeet. She does not see herself at the center of the story. Her motivation for doing this good deed for Jesus is not personal gain. Quite the opposite. Doing this good work for Christ comes at great cost to Mary. This morning, we're going to look at just three of those costs and realize that, that Mary was willing to pay these Costs because she saw Christ at the center of the story. Everywhere she looked around the room on the night of this dinner party, she saw evidence of the grace and the goodness and the love and the compassion of Jesus. It was everywhere on display. Her friend Simon is healed from leprosy by the touch of Jesus, and now he's hosting the party Her brother Lazarus was dead in the grave, but now he's alive eating and drinking with Jesus. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. Her own life has been dramatically and drastically changed because Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to everything that he taught. So as a result of this Christ-centeredness in her life, Mary's heart is compelled to give lavishly to the Lord without thought of the future consequence. And that's the first cost to Mary. first cost is giving up her resources to do a good work for Christ. This perfume oil, as we said last week, it was rare, it was very expensive, the equivalent of a whole year's salary. And should it be true, as some speculate, that this oil... And this beautiful jar was the future financial security for Mary and Martha and Lazarus in their old age. Even that reality didn't prevent Mary from pouring it all out. All of it. Not a drop. Not a little drizzle like we do olive oil when we're cooking. She gave it all. And once the oil was poured out, there was no putting it back in the bottle. That was a cost Mary was willing to pay to do this good work for Jesus. This is Mary's song. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. You know, one of the frustrating realities of preaching, just a little inside look, is always feel the need to caveat what I say. Because I know you are caveating what I say. Just so I don't get too intense or too bold. In this case, when we're looking at this intensity and spontaneity of the gift of Mary, I hear your voice saying to me, now, Craig, settle down, old chap. Decently and in order. Jesus also calls us not To be rash. Jesus also says that we should be measured. That we should count the cost before we build the tower. That we should count the soldiers before we go to war. How glad we are in this moment that Jesus said that. But you know what? I refuse to caveat. I refuse to caveat this lavish, spontaneous, All in act of Mary. Just to assuage our discomfort when we don't want to give lavishly or spontaneously or that we don't even have that desire in the first place to give lavishly or spontaneously to Christ. This act stands as it is. And though I know this to be a unique moment in salvation history, Mary was nevertheless just an ordinary person. And when Jesus was at the center of her story, her story, when his goodness and glory and greatness and grace was in her full view, that's what compelled Mary to do what she did. You and I are dabbling just a little in narcissus When we, out of the need to protect ourselves and our story, When we seek to find a way to retain and reserve, to be measured and calculating instead of being unbound and lavish in our good works for Jesus. But look, Mary couldn't have counted the cost anyway or measured out the plan. She didn't even know what she was doing on the deepest level. She didn't know that in a few days Jesus would be dead. She didn't know when she acted that she was anointing Jesus' body for burial. But guess what? Jesus knew, and that's the point. And what's Jesus' reaction to this lavish act? She has done, done, acted, done a beautiful thing to me. Mary has done a good work, a noble deed, a praiseworthy action, a gospel thing. We can do lavish good works out of love for Christ. And we can leave the results to Him to use those acts in ways that we never anticipated or calculated or measured. Ways that will result in His glory just as Mary did. So number one, doing good works can cost us our resources, our time, our money, our things, even our emotions. When we are at the center of the story, our initial reaction To doing good works will be one of reservation and hesitation. But when Christ is the center, our response might well be lavish giving, spontaneous giving. That's why we must make Christ the center, the second cost. Doing good works might cost us our rights. In John's gospel, when he tells the story, he adds the detail that not only did Mary anoint Jesus' head with oil, she anointed his feet as well. That means Mary touched Jesus' feet. That means that Mary did something that she would never have been required to do ever in her life. That means that Mary did something that even some slaves didn't have to do. Only the lowest of the low slaves were required to touch or wash or anoint the feet of another person. And so in her own eyes and in the eyes of her culture, she had the right never to be required to touch the feet of another person in this way In this setting, this reality makes it all the more amazing that Jesus, the Lord of glory, in a few days would not only touch the disciples' feet, but wash them on the very same night that he would command them to bear fruit. In an even more shocking way than what they had already witnessed in Mary's act, they are shown again that bearing fruit might very likely require them to give up their rights. Bearing fruit for Christ, doing good works for Christ might very likely require the disciples to give up their own lives. Listen, you and I woke up in the same country this morning. And it would be a waste of my breath that I'll never get back. And it would be a waste of your time that you will never get back to recount all the ways that we live in a rights crazed world culture we live in a rights crazed culture we are one big festering rights sore, just waiting for someone to deny our rights it's difficult i mean i'm I'm not gonna editorialize (laughs) shut my mouth all that to say it's difficult for us to lay aside our rights and our culture Because our culture demands that we take up those rights. Our culture tells us to cry, offense, offended, anytime our rights are abrogated. But Mary, in light of who Christ is, had no such thought. Mary, in light of who Jesus is, was compelled to do what she did not have to do. Mary was no narcissist. Instead, her own rights became unimportant to her. I'm not talking about other people's rights here. Never suggesting that we should trot on them or seek to eliminate them or deny them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what we believe our rights to be. And I'm suggesting that neither we nor our rights are the center of the story. Jesus is the center of the story. We are peripheral to what he is doing. And I know that may sound shocking because our inclination, again, is to caveat and to respond, wait a minute, Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. You're not going to get any pushback from me on that beautiful truth. But here's the thing. He loves you and he loves me. He died for you and he died for me in light of who he is and in spite of who we are and who he is. That's what requires that we lay aside our rights as Mary did. It means that we do what we don't have to do, what nobody can make us do for the sake of Christ. When we pick up the cross of Christ, we have to put down our rights. We live under a new flag, not the self flag. We live under the Christ flag. We've got to come to the place that we realize we have no rights before the Lord. You know what, actually, that's not even true. Because we all, all of us do do have one right before the Lord. We were born with this right. And that right is that you and I spend eternity cast out of the presence of the Lord. Because every one of us, conceived in sin, born in sin, we have the right never to come into the holy presence of a holy, holy, holy God. But the desire of the Lord is not to give us what we rightly deserve. And so in His great love and mercy and grace He provided a way for you and for me to spend all eternity in His presence. Is that good news? Is that good news? Do you know you don't deserve it? Do you know you don't deserve it? All but for the grace of God. And so when it comes to doing good works for the Lord, bearing fruit for Him, it's all about His rights. It's all about what Christ desires from you and from me. And not about our rights or what we deserve from Him. It's about his will and his way and not about our own. Again, to quote Samuel Rutherford, When the Lord's blessed will bloweth across your desires, it's best in humility to strike sail to him and to be willing to be led any way that our Lord pleaseth. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. And then we come to this final cost of this good work done by Mary for Jesus. She was willing to give up her reputation. Not only did you know this, but not only did Mary touch the feet of Jesus, but she let down her hair and she wiped Jesus' feet with her hair under normal conditions, this would have been a scandalous, scandalous act. No woman was supposed to let her hair down in public. Married women could be divorced if they did it. Single women could be stoned just for letting their hair down. that's the culture of the day. Only a woman of loose morals would let her hair down in public. But Mary is willing to give up her reputation in order to give Jesus her heart in this intimate act of devotion. But guess what? Jesus had already done that for her. Philippians 2. Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. In heaven, Jesus was worshipped, honored, praised, adored. But he left that reputation behind in heaven to come to earth to do God's greatest work on the cross. And on earth, He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. On this earth, people misunderstood Jesus. They lied about him. They mocked him. They spit on him. But so it had to be in order to accomplish God's good work of saving you and me. Peter writes in his first letter to us, you and me. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is a tough one for us, isn't it? We spend so much of our time trying to build a reputation and then to protect the reputation that we've built, very close to the front of our minds is always this question, what will people think? And how many times has our perceived answer to that question caused us not to do what we know we should have done for Christ just because of what people might think? Can I give you this this piece of advice? Because I have to give it to myself every single day. Here it is. Let it go. That's it. Let it go. You can't really protect your reputation anyway. People will say what they want to say. And you're not going to be able to do anything about it. And guess what? More than half the time, you don't even know what they're saying about you anyway. So you can't defend your reputation to them. Do this. Let it go. Entrust your reputation with God, the only one in this world, and certainly the next, who judges you justly. Let it go, leave it to him, and do what he shows you to do. The Apostle Paul writes, we are fools for Christ's sake. John Piper writes, to be a Christian, to be obedient to God's word, you must become a fool. Thoughtful fools to be sure, hope-filled fools to be sure, happy fools with lots of serious joy to be sure, but fools nevertheless, unashamed, happy fools, not self-pitying, not dour, not defensive, not forlorn, not miserable, not oh poor me fools, but unashamed, happy, hope-filled fools for Christ. That's good, isn't it? Once again, I wish I'd said it. (laughs) When you and I are narcissists, I'm done. One minute. When we believe ourselves to be the center of the story, this is what we do. We retain our resources for ourselves when we're the center. When we're the center, we demand our rights for ourselves. When we're the center, we act or don't act because we seek to protect and even build our own reputations. But when Christ is the center of the story, oh, everything changes for you and for me. So let's change together. Wouldn't that be great? Let's make Christ the center. Let's keep Christ the center. Let's pay the cost. Let's give lavishly to do the good works of Christ. Let's give up our rights so that we might do the good works of Christ. Let's give up our reputations so that we might do the good works of Christ. But please, For Jesus' sake, in obedience to his command, let's do good works, gospel works in this world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that no greater cost has been or could ever be paid than the price that you paid for our salvation because you're the only perfect one who ever lived. And see your death for our sins is like no other death ever died. You paid the cost. We thank you for it. Following you, being your disciple, therefore cannot come at no cost to us. Lord Jesus, make us willing to pay the cost, whatever it might be, So we can live for you, bear fruit for you, do the good works that you have determined ahead of time that we should do and walk in them in this world. Help us to do those things, we pray. Give us the boldness and the courage, the lavishness, spontaneity to do them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.